Welcome to Shed the Music Spotlight Podcast. My name is Bob Habersat, and I'm a high school music teacher and co-founder of ShedTheMusic.com. Dr. Brian Powell leads higher education initiatives for Little Kids Rock, and he is the assistant professor of music education and music technology at Montclair State University, where he teaches classes in music technology, guitar, and popular music. Brian is a musician and music educator who worked as a public school music teacher for the New York City Department of Education. Brian is the executive director of the Association for Popular Music Education and currently serves as the chair of NAFME's Popular Music Education Special Research Interest Group. Thanks, Brian, for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So I'm looking out my I'm looking out my window, and we just got like destroyed with snow. It's February 18th, 2021, and there was this huge snowstorm that went through the whole country. And then I was looking at, uh, you know, Montclair, New Jersey. I'm sure you live around there. It's where you teach. Yeah, not too and, far. Yeah, yeah, I saw that the school was closed. I saw that mm-hmm. there was a lot of snow coming. We had a, uh, a remote, an emergency remote learning day instead of a snow day. And I think there are no longer going to be any snow days ever, like real snow days, like you get off of school snow days. How do you feel about the death of snow days? Well, I mean, uh, see, I grew up in California. So the idea of a snow day, I only came to know about that when I was a New York City public school teacher where you would pray for them. And for five years, like New York City, I I think the Department of Ed gave like one snow day every four years or something. Like we never had snow days. So it was really something to rejoice um, and now, right. I mean, so you say that my kids actually had a snow day today, which was, um, unusual because in theory they could just meet online or asynchronous. Uh, but yeah, they gave them a snow day. So I, I feel like it's a little bit of a lost childhood, but it's a, it's a temporary setback. And, uh, hopefully, you know, by next winter, we'll be back to in-person schooling fully and enjoying snow days the way it should be. Yeah, we did. We did, uh, even last year, before COVID, we, we did these remote learning days and snow days. I am glad to hear that your kids are able to kick back, have some hot cocoa, watch the snow globe outside. That's that's really cool. I I live around Chicago, so we we always had snow days, and it was a, it's a really cool childhood memory to be like, you know, we can be a kid. You could be a kid. You could be like 13 years old, but then you could still be a kid on a snow day. It was a really cool thing. So let's transition. Um, I'm looking at you. You're in your studio. We were talking a little bit about gear before. I have I have a, a my current rabbit hole is like microphones. I've been all about microphones. What's your favorite piece of gear? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, recently it's been uh, my push too uh, because I'm getting more into Ableton. Um, I have, you know, an Akai MPC. It just the, the technology side has been something that I always enjoyed, but never really um, kind of did the deep dive on, on uh, live performance hardware. And in some ways, the, the quarantine has just opened up time for me to plug stuff in and to um, connect my looper to um, a synth in a way that I hadn't done before and just kind of explore there. So uh, I still have, you know, all my amps and things that I, I use regularly. Uh, but I've been doing a lot more with uh, music technology and just kind of exploration. I got together with my friend Gareth, who's a drummer. And we just like recorded a two hour session of me 
making sounds and beats and then he all of his drums were electronic and he was triggering sounds and then record i was recording what we were doing and manipulating it back and um so that that's been a cool thing to just kind of really low low pressure explore uh different things and record things and then hopefully something cool comes out of it um so that's where a lot of my um time has been spent recently because I can't go anywhere. I can't really get together. I mean, when I got together with Gareth, we were distanced and, uh, uh, which technology can allow, but it's, um, it's been, it's been a strange time, but in, but the limitations of not being able to travel has opened me up to, uh, being able to explore more hardware. Yeah. I have my, my push is on a shelf. I, it keeps staring at me and it's like <laughs> giving me, it's like, Hey, Hey, Bob. I'm a push. I have you have me. I'm on the shelf, and I need to. I need to do it. I'm I'm a I'm a diehard like MIDI keyboard person. Like I play all my drum parts. I play my bass lines. I play everything in there. I could see using the push for like the live looping thing, the live production thing. I just need to. I need to get over it. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna get over it because it makes you think totally differently. You compose totally differently because you're interacting right. with music in a totally different manner. I'm used to linear DAWs and everything, and just seeing mm -hmm. the 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 columns and uh, I, I just need to I just need to to get on to it, uh, but it's that's so cool to hear that um, you know a, such a high level educator is still putting themselves in the sandbox and you know like all right let's let's see what happens you know it's something that we can all all do totally and the more I play around with stuff the more I realize like um, oh man there's so much that I don't know and then getting into sampling with an Akai and, and, and all of those sort of things, I think that it, it also models the thing that I want my students to embrace that, um, you know, we, we're never too old to pick up a guitar to join a rock band or to um, start playing around with drum sequencers or whatever the case may be, um, because, you know, I always want to be learning and growing as a musician, even um, though I'm a total beginner in some ways, uh, like everyone does, and then you kind of learn some things and you can build from there. Yeah, it's that, that play, the element of play. Like, I remember being a kid and sitting at the piano and just, like, have, have no idea what I'm doing, just, like, playing things or watching my kids. They're just, like, playing. And I feel like we get so caught up in, like, making music and wearing our, you know, our coattails and our conductor's things and our we have a set of batons and everything's so serious. Like, playing music is so important. And it's something that we need to, to have our students do and I think that's that's something that's great about like popular music education, which I know you're a huge advocate of and a great like pathfinder in in, in the and how it's you know starting to become more of a, a thing. Like what well how can how can teachers develop more of that sort of because I, I you know you said you you uh, talk about with your students. How can teachers develop more of that play in their own practice? Yeah, I mean, th that's a great question. And, um, you know, a lot of it is we think about our work in terms of our ensembles or in terms of the class we're teaching. So, you know, if I'm if I'm teaching a guitar class, maybe I could see a way forward where students could choose some of the repertoire and they're engaging in peer mentoring and they're playing music that is fun for them. And that kind of makes sense in that context. And then sometimes it's like, and now... I'm it's band period concert band period and I'm putting on my 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 conductor I'm the director I choose all the the elements of the rehearsal I choose the repertoire I choose the performance opportunities and and sometimes we can see opportunities for 
for play and for democratizing the space, uh, the classroom, and for giving students agency and voice in one music education context. And then we go into another context and it's like, oh, well, this is quote unquote traditional uh, band choir orchestra. And so I have to do it that way. Uh, for me, uh, you know, I, I taught in New York City for uh, 11 years in a public school and I was kind of forced into rethinking my approach to music education because I was, you know, trained to be a band director. My dad, my father was a, a high school band director. He was my high school band director growing up. And so I was like, oh, that's what I'm going to do. And then I got into the classroom and quickly realized I got a job in East Harlem in a public school in New York City. And I quickly realized that those students were uh, passionate about music. They liked music. They liked talking about music. They liked sharing music. But they didn't really want to play trombone like I do. Or I, I had a wind ensemble that met in the mornings and it was hard to get students interested in that. But then right around 2003, 2004, um, GarageBand comes out and, and it was a shell of what it is now. But at the time it was like, oh my gosh, it's kind of like Fruity Loops and it's kind of like, you know... Um, the, these recording DAWs that previously didn't exist and my school had a Mac lab and so I started doing simple simple kind of music technology creation recording loop based projects um, some elements of production by students and it totally took off uh, and then they start saying like oh we want to learn music that we hear on the radio and we want to play and record it and so then you know, I didn't have any programs, so I started to get guitars, and then that formed into kind of like an after-school rock band. And then all of a sudden, like, my, my program kind of was always just in response to the musical uh, desires of the students. And that's something that took me a, a while as a teacher to kind of figure out that maybe my first class should start with a discussion with my students about, you know, what, what are their goals for the music class? What what do they want to do? What are they listening to? What are they interested in? Um you know, because before I would come in, I'm like, well, I'm the teacher. I will. I have the knowledge. They don't have the knowledge. I will give them the knowledge. This is what I've been trained to do. Um, and it it took me too long, frankly, to kind of figure out like, oh, that's not the approach that I want to be using. Uh, and I can teach all of the things that I want to teach, uh, regardless of the repertoire. So if my goal is for my students to have um, you know, a good aesthetic experience for them to learn about the musical elements of harmony and melody and timbre and dynamics, for them to connect with other students collaboratively, for them to be able to make music on their own. I can do that with popular music. I can do that with music technology. And so once I kind of let go of, yeah, but I, can I do this in the classroom? Uh, into just like, hey, this is working. Let's keep running with it. Then it freed up a lot of opportunities for me to... Um, to bring in informal learning practices, for me to democratize the space where students were choosing repertoire alongside with me, where students were um, selecting the instruments they wanted to play, uh, where students had a voice in uh, the arrangement of the songs, things like that. And so, you know, I kind of, uh, even though I played popular music instruments outside of being a music teacher and I was in a band for a while, that didn't really bleed its way into my music teaching until my students started kind of pushing back of like, we like music, we just don't want to play trombone. And then it kind of really opened up um, my perceptions of what music education can be and should be. And so I'm so thankful that I had that experience with those students in, the, in East Harlem when I was there for 11 years because it totally put me on this trajectory of rethinking approaches to music edu education to be more democratic, to be more inclusive, 
um, to focus on, you know, issues now that we that are at the heart of what we're talking about music at about social justice and equity, diversity and inclusion. Um, I was just kind of in the right place at the right time to, to be able to be a part of those conversations early on. So uh, my trajectory through popular music education and my approach to allowing students to have a voice in what they're doing and rethinking what school music can be all just came directly from my experiences teaching in New York City. And, and thank you for for doing that and having the you know openness to like see the situation and not try to push the kids into you know your what you wanted them to because I feel like you know it would be unfair for them but but for you to have those realizations and then you know to be able to share your experiences and to you know do a lot with um, Little Kids Rock, which we're going to talk about later, and App Me, which we're going to talk about later, and then just, you know, kind of realizing that change needs to occur to, to allow these students to have a rich musical experience, and then, you know, you know, being able to just, like, take a step back and then allow, you know, music educators to, to hear that message. Um, so... I'm going to pause this for a second because I'm about to sneeze. But I don't know if I'm going to sneeze, but I feel like I'm about to sneeze. So I'm going to pause myself. I sneezed myself. earlier, so all good. <laughs> you did? Yeah. <coughs> ah! I think I think the fear is for music teachers um, in the quote-unquote traditional path is that the level of musicianship isn't going to be as high for popular music because, like, Maurice Ravel would look at a Taylor Swift song and flick his thumb at it, you know? So, like, what do you, what do you think about that? Like, could you still have a high level of musicianship while learning, you know, modern repertoire? Yeah, absolutely. And there's countless examples of ensembles at every age from, you know, elementary school to now, uh, you know, there, there's an increasing amount of popular music performance um, groups in colleges and universities who are performing at an amazing high level and are getting gigs and are becoming session players and are going out on the road and um, and are having those success. Um, however, even when we think about our own you know, band squires and orchestras in high school, uh, you know, those ensembles serve maybe 20% of the student population. And then you have this other 80%. And the, the, the good quality aesthetic experience for those students um, is valuable, no doubt about that. But then of those students, uh, maybe 1% go on to pursue music um, of, of all students in, in a school will go on to pursue music as their career in high school. And so when people talk about good, I'm putting good in quotes for people who are just listening to this, uh, good repertoire, I, I'm, I'm always questioning, well, who defines good? Um, and sometimes the pursuit of excellence can get in the way of actually uh, having more students participate in school music, uh, school music at, at any level. That's not to say that there's not a, an avenue for students who want to pursue music and want to use that as a path for upward mobility to major in, in college and they and they want to go to festival and get a superior rating and that's all good. But again, that's a fraction of the students that you teach and they have all these other students. Um, and there's been a lot of, of uh, recent research and, and writing around this idea of, of um, amateurism as a good thing, 
you know, we like to throw the word amateur around it's like, oh, it's just an amateur as though that's um, that's less than it's a pejorative. But if we look at the root of what amateur means, it, it comes from the French amour to, to love. It's someone who does something because they love doing it, not because they're being paid or not because it's a job that's assigned to them. And so when we look at that for our own students, if I can have a classroom full of musical amateurs, it, isn't that the goal? That I have students who are doing it because they love doing it and because they're finding meaningful connections to it. Um, that's an amazing thing. And sometimes, you know, uh, and I've been guilty of this in the past with auditioned ensembles and, um, oh, you're not good enough, so you're going to be third chair or you can't play that, so you're not going to go to the festival. You know, that kind of mentality. I never took my kids in East Harlem to, to a festival. So these are just kind of... Um, made of examples that I've seen in other ensembles, but I feel like uh, absolutely you can have high quality musical performance in ensembles. Also, we as music educators can reframe in our head what quality and good mean. Um, it's not always the most uh, high performing ensembles. I think that a good ensemble is an inclusive ensemble, and that is inclusive of uh, students with disability, that's inclusive of students who don't read traditional music staff notation. That's inclusive of students who uh, might have a, a physical disability that don't allow them to, to play the instrument and need to uh, make music on an iPad instead or some kind of other adaptive device. Uh, device. I think that we as music educators can hold two things in our heads. We can say like, yes, I do have an audition group and they're performing at a really high level and they're challenging themselves musically and that's good. Also... I can facilitate a music program that welcomes everyone, regardless of ability, regardless of perceived musicality, and that is also good. Uh, and so I'm I'm happy to see really high-performing ensembles, but I am equally, if not more, happy to see ensembles that are inclusive, welcoming, hospitable, and, and instill a love for music making for students um, where it's not about, you know, the student who might get a scholarship to Berkeley, but a student who's going to become a dentist or uh, an accountant, but has this love of music that they, you know, kind of picked up and was instilled in them in their school music program. So I, I think that we need to, on the music side, understand that both things can have value, the, the excellence and high performance, but also the inclusive nature of school music. We can hold these things um, simultaneously as good outcomes of music education. Amen. And and you were saying like your students in East Harlem, they were composing, you know, they were doing, oh, they yeah. were talking about their own arrangements. They were picking things that doesn't happen in concert band, or if it does, you're an awesome teacher, you know, like it feels like it's, you, you go, uh, it's a mile wide and an inch deep instead. I would rather have my students really enjoy what they're, what they're studying, what kind of music it is, but then they're you know, learning about, you know, chords, because chords for pop songs are a lot easier to understand than, you know, uh, French Impressionism. So, you know, if they can really understand, like, okay, this is the third of the chord, and I'm doing everything in the key of C right now, so I totally understand this. And for the students that I teach, um, they're like general population students. It's kind of like an all come here, and we'll, we'll learn it thing. And it's, it's just really cool to see getting deeper into something that you normally don't do in band and choir. You can... That yeah. brings me to the next question. Like, how can traditional ensembles add some of those elements in their classroom? Right. Uh, and that's been an exciting um, kind of development is we see more and more, especially now um, in quarantine. 
uh, because when everything was thrown to virtual instruction uh, at the end of last school year, there were a lot of band choir and orchestra teachers who were like, oh, um, I can't do whole class instruction. Maybe I don't have the bandwidth to do a virtual ensemble. So what am I going to do? And a lot of choral teachers turned towards Soundtrap and Band Lab and other um, Flipgrid for, for students recording themselves on video and other ways for students to create uh, and submit and collaborate. And so this element of kind of composition and songwriting and things that maybe hadn't been present previously in our band squires and orchestras, or as you said, it, if it was present, it was the exception, not the rule. I mean, there, there are books called Composing in Band and Orchestra. There are um, examples where we see this a little bit. Um, and But again, the teachers that are doing that historically have been the teachers who are really making an effort to say, this is going to be a part of that. And so whether it's in the choir, you know, I've, I've seen um, choirs where the, the director might be like, come up to the basses and like, all right, basses, boom, 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 boom. Keep it going. Don't stop. Okay. All right. Now, uh, altos, huddle up. You're just going to come up with some kind of like um, sustained notes that work with this. Okay, cool. Sopranos, see if you can figure out a melody. And they would do kind of real-time songwriting melody creation activities that got students away from just staring at the music that had been given to them and allowed them to create their own things. Uh, but the challenge of doing that is that doesn't prepare your students to go to festival and get superior in the same way. It builds their musicality in other ways, uh, but sometimes it's a challenge because it's like, well, I've got a band in front of me. I've got 80 people in my concert band. The, how are we going to write our own music? I know that composition is part of the national core art standards. It's probably started part of my state standards. But how am I supposed to incorporate composition here in a meaningful way? And there are examples um, where, again, you can break people into combos and be like, all right, we're going to come up with a melody and find something that works with that and notate a duet that you're going to perform that you create. Or here's a melody. See if you can write another part that kind of works with that melody. There are, there are ways to do that, but it's so easy in popular music because with three notes, I'm a trombone player, with three notes on the trombone, I can play hot cross buns. With three chords on the guitar, I can play a thousand songs, you know, um, and then I can take that chord or ukulele or whatever. And I can take that chord progression and I can write my own lyrics. I, it, it's, it lends itself really well to music creation. It, it lends itself well to improvisation. Um, all of the things that we know are kind of good educational practices, improvisation, composition, um, you know, students having a voice in the repertoire selection. It's at the core, it's at the heart of what we do in popular music education, and it's really hard to sometimes do that in our traditional ensemble. So it's been interesting, uh, to repeat what I said earlier, to see all of these choir directors and band directors who are now embracing like, okay, we're using Soundtrap. Students are creating their own musical idea. I, I, I put in a, a drum beat on track one. And then I opened up tra track two, and I'm just having my students play. They can only play the B-flat scale, but they're creating their own melodic idea for eight measures over this drumbeat. Like, th there's real tangible, easy ways to get students creating so that they can start to become musical storytellers and not just musical story readers. You know, we have students who are good at reading. 
what you put in front of them and then you take the music away and then it's kind of like, oh, I, I don't know what to play. I need someone to tell me what to play. So it's been really, and that's one of the things that I hope, you know, we understand that probably things will never go back to normal, uh, normal in quotes, meaning exactly like they were before quarantine. But but this idea of getting students creating in our band squares and orchestras using technology like Soundtrap or BandLab um, to record things and bringing in elements of production, even simple things, I hope that those are things that carry over when we do go back to in-person instruction full-time in the fall, uh, because I don't want to lose out on those things that are happening. Yeah, musical storytellers and not musical story readers is something that I probably, I, I need to get that on a tattoo. I don't have any tattoos, <laughs> but I think I have this, a big space on my left arm. I think it would fit really well in a nice cursive script. Yeah, there wow. you go. That's that's some stuff right there. I because... honestly, I, I'm sure that I heard that from uh, maybe Nell Noddings or someone. I was at a conference and people were talking about like, are we, are we story readers or are we storytellers? And I was like, oh, my gosh, because that was me in high school. You know, um, if I was a freshman in high school, my parents had friends over and the friends said, like, oh, Brian, you play trombone. Why don't you play us something? I would have said, oh, I don't have my music with me, so I, I can't play anything. <laughs> I was so dependent on having the sheet music in front of me. And so uh, I heard that music st music tellers or uh, storytellers versus story readers. And I was like, oh, that's that's a, got a musical connection to it. So it's something that's, you know always kind of stayed with me because I was a musical story reader, but not a musical storyteller. Yeah. Wow. Really thinking about this tattoo. That's amazing. Well, I, I, yeah. If your wife gets mad at you for getting tatted up all of a sudden, you can blame this podcast. <laughs> okay. I will. I'll blame you. I'll blame her. I'll blame, I won't blame her. I'll blame Nell. I'll blame everyone. Yeah, blame exactly. myself. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm actually working on a curriculum right now to have students uh, arrange their own pop tunes for, like um, pep band. So it's like mm -hmm. if you have a melody and you have the chord symbols, you have everything you need. If you just need to know some rules and a little bit of theory, you can go with it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's going to be interesting to see how that that works. Everybody's playing in the sandbox right now with uh, composition and stuff. And it's, it's really difficult to get students to compose melodies that actually sound like melodies, to sound melodic. And mm -hmm. um, if, you've, if you've tried it, you know, if you've tried like, all right, use the B flat scale here. And we, here's a drum beat. Here's a bass line. Improvise with this B flat scale. It's it's hard because sometimes they'll they'll play something and it is it doesn't sound good. And it's really difficult to like approach that from an educational loving standpoint to support that student, but then also to get to the next point to scaffold to like okay let's did you like it? Why did you like it or didn't like it? What can we do to improve on it? And then start talking about the theory and start pulling in things and, you know, melodic rhythm and all these these things that are really important. Um, but, yeah, if if we go back to the exact way things were, it would be such a sad thing. I think that, I mean, on my notes here, it's how can we use this time to change things for the better. And I think mm. that I've always talked about, like, it's going to take – some crazy global event for us to <laughs> rethink the way we do music education. Like we're going to be stuck with our, our batons at, at festivals forever. Like something crazy needs to happen. And then, you know, now we're, we're all rethinking everything and it's, yeah. it's, it's a horrible time that we're in right now, but it is, 
you know, we could look at, at it as an obstacle or we could look at it as an opportunity. And I think that some of the things that you were saying, even if you just like, just have that, if, if you got the tattoo already, cause you might've already gotten it done. <laughs> if you're looking at storytellers and story readers, like just think about that right before you get on the podium and then take a breath and be like, what's important for these kids right now. And, and I think that, you know, it, those little things are gonna, gonna help, but I bet things are different for, cause, cause you teach collegiate and uh, I, I, I talked to some, uh, professors and it seems like the the higher ed world is changing because of all this like what are some things that are are happening to higher ed yeah so i mean it's it's interesting um you know i I teach music technology classes at montclair state university in new jersey and i teach popular music classes um and i would you know i've been a big proponent of online uh classes and instruction and before, you know, you would sometimes um, you would have to kind of craft out your case for why music technology and why technology in general was important in education. And you had to craft your case for the importance of online education. What's been interesting is because everyone was forced into um, doing online instruction. Uh, now, everyone gets it. Why music technology classes might be important. Why being able to engage uh, in musical experiences and facilitate musical experiences using technology and and in remote, you know, deterritorialized. So not when we're all in the same space, but we're, uh, you know, you and I are inhabiting the same space right now, even though we're thousands of miles apart, but it's not a real space. It's a space that exists kind of in the cloud or however you want to think about it. Um, there's been a real uh, kind of understanding of the importance of, of what's going on there. Um, you know, this push of virtual instruction has also happened in a time kind of um, in society where a lot of things are happening as well. You know, the the importance of um, the Black Lives Matter movement and the push towards equity, diversity, inclusion that we're seeing has coincided with a lot of these um you know, the, the push in virtual instruction and, and the craziness that's been going on in the quarantine. And so some of the ideas around, okay, if my ensembles are serving this small portion of the people, and then I have all these, the other 80% of students, what can I do to kind of welcome those students in? And now we're starting to see like, okay, we, we need to understand that maybe certain traditions aren't going to uh, work for all students. And so those of us in higher ed who have been saying like, we've got to diversify what we're doing. We have to open the door to more participation um, because the data shows that our, our large ensembles are disproportionately higher socioeconomic status. They're disproportionately um, more white they're less diverse than the schools that we work in. And so there's been a real opportunity now, and I'm seeing it with you know my higher education colleagues of like, as you said before, we've all known that there's been a need to change, um, but there's been this kind of worldwide event that's thrust uh, a lot of these elements into a little bit more clear focus because maybe our ensembles can't get together and rehearse in the same way. Uh, and, and at Montclair State University, I think it's a great example of a lot of our ensembles are uh, and they have been for a while. This isn't a new thing. They've been re- tackling things like um, Black Lives Matter and LGBTQ rights. And they've been um, really kind of uh, putting their money where their mouth is, so to speak, around ideas of social justice. And so when I'm talking to my students, uh, my, my pre-service music teacher students, 
you know, there I, I had graduates last year who were going into their first teaching job ever, and it's totally remote. They're meeting students for the first time through their Zoom lens. Um, and so really kind of bringing home to my pre-service music teacher educators the importance of all of these things combined. It's not just about technology and access. It's not just about connecting with students with music that's important to them and having that start the, the conversation. It's about expanding, uh, you know, widening the door to music participation, so to speak. It's about being prepared to facilitate musical experiences in a variety of contexts. Because if you only are a really good oboe player and you're going to conduct the orchestra or the band, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, cool, you're going to be teaching beat making through Soundtrap using the Patterns Beatmaker. You're, you're totally out of your element, you know, but if you can say like, all right, I've been prepared to facilitate a diverse experience, uh, you're going to have more success in the classroom. And so that's been one of the exciting things that I've seen in higher ed is this embrace of like, it's not just about, you know, conducting and running an ensemble. It's about being a, being a music teacher, you know, big M wide umbrella under which a lot of traditions exist. So that kind of brings me to like, now there's this um, this upward structure. I mean, whereas because I'm a high school teacher, you know, I'm dealing with the same thing. We're coming coming to the same realizations. Higher ed, they're coming to the same realizations. Um, like the the place to communicate those things has been at conferences and through mm -hmm. professional organizations. And um, I think APME is, should I, should I say APME or APME? What do I do here? Uh, so it's like uh, it's like NAFME. Everyone calls it NAFME, except for people who work for NAFME. They always call it NAFME. Um, so it half of the people call it APME. I've always called it APME because I'm like, oh, that sounds more official. But as the executive <laughs> director, that's probably my... I, just a made-up thing that I told myself in my head one time. So uh, it ha it's half and half. There's no right or wrong answer. Okay, because I yeah I just I just came uh, to a milestone in my being a music tech nerd. I went from saying Moog to Moog. Yeah. So like I don't want to be that guy. I don't be like the, the APME, <laughs> but you're the executive director. So I'm gonna I'm gonna it's APME now because um, that's how go. it always All has right. been. Moog. Um, so that professional organization focuses on well my question is here here is what is a APME I was about to say it I was about to say it and why should people join it yeah so um, the Association for Popular Music Education APME uh, is a consortium of educators um, artists those in um, music publishing and uh, nonprofit organizations, all uh, with with a common theme of supporting popular music education at all levels. When it was first started, it was started back in 2010 because there were a lot of universities and colleges who who were starting to have popular music degrees, whether they were popular music performance bachelor's degrees or whether they were music industry degrees that had a really heavy music performance. Um, and so people like Berkeley and then USC had started one and University of Miami had a popular music performer where you could go and major in popular music and perform in popular music ensembles and your theory was popular music focused. Um, but what there wasn't was a kind of general understanding about best practices uh, around assessments and, and degree course tracks and things like that. And so 10 uh, to 12 uh, leaders of popular music programs kind of got together and said, hey, let's just get together for a conversation because 
we want to build community. We want to support each other. You know, it's not about competition. Like I want students to apply here and not at your school. You know, we want to kind of come together and collaborate. And uh, so then they got together and, and had a chat. Then they got together the next year and kind of presented a little bit. You know, you mentioned music conferences it is the form of of professional development that we're all familiar with. So they started presenting like, hey, here's what we're doing or here's some activities or whatever. And then it got to the point where it's like, well, maybe we should become an association. And so uh, the Association for Popular Music Education was founded with this idea of supporting popular music education, but it was largely in higher ed at that time. And so once, and then we started running conferences at USC and at Miami and at Berkeley. We did one at NYU, um, University of Colorado, Denver, Middle Tennessee State University, which has got a, a, the Center for Popular Music there. And what we started to see throughout the years is there was this, a couple different uh, growing uh, constituencies who are coming to our conference. And the, the, the biggest one, besides the college music educators, were K-12 teachers who were either using popular music to bridge that gap between, you know, quote unquote, school music and music in society, or they were running modern band programs. Uh, they were they had a music technology lab that was starting to kind of, you know, gain some traction. And so we started seeing a lot more K-12 music educators coming to our conference uh, and realizing that this is a really uh, growing market. And similarly, you know, back when I was in East Harlem and I started my after school rock band and I was doing garage band, I totally thought that I was like a unicorn. I was like, no one else is doing this. I don't know if I'm supposed to quote unquote supposed to be doing this. Um, I don't know what best practices are. I'm making this up. I'll teach my kids tablature and we're going to play songs. I, I guess we're going to do songwriting like I was just making it up as I went along because there wasn't. Um, a kind of understanding of approaches. People weren't doing this. Facebook didn't exist. Uh, YouTube didn't exist. Uh, we just didn't have all of the wealth of information that we have now. And, and now we have uh, organizations like Little Kids Rock, the nonprofit, that are doing a lot of work to create curricular resources to get those out into schools um, all free you know, for, for teachers, littlekidsrock.org plug, uh, where teachers are kind of building community. There are Facebook groups for popular music educators to, to share what they're doing in the classroom. So um, APME kind of came out of necessity uh, where there needed to be an understanding of collaboration and uh, around popular music education. And what's been cool is we've just in, I mean, a decade is a really long time and then on the other hand it's no time at all and so in the last 10 years which isn't that large of a swing in kind of like music education's history we've seen so many more popular music uh, ensembles in k-12 schools in university programs we've seen more technology labs created we've seen um you know the, the explosion of modern band through the work that little kids rock is doing and now we see things like the national association for music education nafme's all all national ensembles well they have a modern band and that modern band was playing at the the national conference playing Lizzo tunes and um, John Mayer tunes and, and doing their own songwriting and performing their own music. I mean, it's incredible just how much, tra how, how much progress there's been in the last 10 years in the area of popular music education. So APME um, is still trying to be a resource for music educators who are looking to uh, incorporate popular music education into the classrooms, finding out about higher education programs. They have performance ensembles that they want to send to 
some kind of um, you know conference or, or student festival. So we we're growing with the popular music education community, always hopefully in response to what they actually need. You know, it's not APME's goal to tell the popular music education community what they should be doing. Um, you know, we want to listen more than we speak, and then we want to provide uh, a conference homes and and certain events where people can come and and quote unquote find their people. Uh, we hear that a lot of people at conferences be like, oh man, I've been to the NAFME conference. I've been to these audio recording conferences. I went to the Association for Technology and Music Instruction and, and all of those were good. But at APME, I really feel like I found my people. Um, and so we run every year for the last 10 years, we've run a conference with the exception of last year because everything was, you know, the world came to an end. Uh, and this year we're going to be in Chicago at Columbia College, Chicago, uh, June 9th through 12th. And we're doing a hybrid conference where people who are able to join in person um, and feel comfortable doing that can come in person. All the sessions will be streamed. And then people who aren't able to join us in person uh, will have a full remote Zoom uh, conference experience. And so we're we're working with Columbia College now, who's been, they've been awesome, um, to figure out things like, what does it mean to have a safe, distanced conference where maybe half the people will have had the vaccine by then, but other people only had one dose, or, you know, uh, can we share microphones as presenters? Should everyone bring their own mic? How many mics do I need to sanitize them in between sessions? So these are all the kind of fun realities of organizing a conference in the year 2021, but it was important to us to be able to offer some kind of an in-person experience because that's so key to um, building community and networking and connecting with other folks. And so um, the people that can join us in person, awesome. Uh, the people that join through uh, Zoom, we totally get that as well. And our goal is that we go to a different city each summer, um, late May, early June, usually. Uh, I don't even know if that's the start of summer. That's probably late spring. I don't even know when the first day of summer is. June 23rd? I don't know, I don't know I what day up? it is right now. I don't even yeah, know. Uh, yeah, you and me both. I'm... And my wife said earlier, it's like, oh, tomorrow's Friday. And I'm like, really? What's today? <laughs> you know, it's just, it's one Zoom meeting from another. Sometimes I'm teaching. Sometimes I'm conferencing. Sometimes I'm, you know, hanging out with friends. It's hard to, it's hard to know what it is. What is time? Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I was excited uh, to go to the one in Detroit uh, last year. But, I mean, shout out to Columbia because they have, they're, I always, I, they're like a mini Berkeley um, yeah. we, we started having them. I'm, I teach in Oak Lawn, which is a ring suburb of Chicago, and we yep. started to have them come out. And Scott Hall, he's now, um, I think he might be the head of the department there. He is such a fantastic, like, visionary thinker, and it's just really cool to see that program grow and, and change. And they came out with their, like, modern like fusion ensembles and stuff, and just, like, right. the kids are, like, holding onto their chairs, like, this is what – this is what music is. It's not Sousa. Like what? They're they're yeah. melt. They're shred. Like they're that dude is shredding guitar right now, and he's like like five years older than me. He's like, yep, <laughs> yep. That's where it's at. Yeah, um, I mean, a shout out again to Columbia because it's not an easy time to host uh, a conference, and they've been totally like, let's do it. Let's let's do it safe and right, and we'll make sure that everyone feels safe who comes. Um, but they are totally committed and, um, you know, our goal is we're going to open up to, to Chicago, uh, area music teachers to, to be able to come at, at little or no cost to them. Cause we really want, you know, the, the Chicago teachers in the area who maybe don't really know what 
uh, Columbia has to offer. They got a really amazing new student center. And, um, you know, we really want to kind of connect with the local community because Chicago is such a great uh, music scene and um, a, a music culture uh you know of the blues and so many other genres of music that we want to uh be able to tap into that when we come to the conference yeah so you mentioned little kids rock um and in all the amazing free resources the curriculum items that you can get if you were a teacher starting right now like okay i want to do modern band it, not this year but but next year mm-hmm. how would you go around using little kids rock what would you do yeah, absolutely. That's a good question. And, um, you know, the the exciting thing is, is that there's no one path or trajectory to incorporating modern band in your classroom. You know, if you already play popular music instruments and you're interested in bringing that in, you know, Little Kids Rock can be a great resource for, um, you know, figuring out how to sequence instruction, how to how to bring in scaffolding and differentiation into the classroom. Um, and they have trainings and right now all the trainings are virtual, but again, they're free for teachers. Uh, and, and Little Kids Rock has partnered with Soundtrap that the teachers who complete the courses, the online courses that Little Kids Rock are offering, uh, get a free six month subscription four or six months, don't quote me on that, it's one of those, uh, to Soundtrap uh, EDU for the classroom. So there's a lot of possibilities there. But then for the teacher who, like many of us in music ed, was traditionally trained, um, don't never played maybe in bands, uh, don't have the quote-unquote skill set, but are still looking to expand what they do, uh, the, Little Kids Rock has resources for you. One of the the big differences in in an approach for teaching modern band versus what we think of for traditional concert bands is that you don't need to be the expert in everything to be able to bring it into the classroom. You know, you don't need to be the best ukulele player to say, hey, I'm going to do ukulele with my students. I'm going to be learning alongside them, staying one step ahead of them. And I'm going to be honest about that. That's not something to be embarrassed of or to hide. Have a conversation with students that says, Look, I'm not the expert here. I'm going to be learning with you. We're all in this together. That's a very um, unifying approach to to music education, that you're all in this together. You're collaboratively working on these things. Uh, Same thing with hip hop. If you want to bring hip hop in because you're, especially if you're working uh, in a school that has, you know, students of color or students who are really into hip hop, you don't have to be a freestyle rapper. You know, you don't have to be an expert beat maker to say like, hey, I'm going to try to facilitate opportunities for this in the classroom. Little Kids Rock has a lot of resources. There are resources on other, um, you know, Facebook groups and online resources. You know, shout out Shed the Music if you want to do music technology or production. There's so many resources out there that you just want to start somewhere. You know, if you're starting from zero, you might think, oh, man, having a full-fledged, modern band that's like doing rock tunes and kids are soloing and and shredding and i can't get there well well not overnight no but like what's one step that you could take towards there? maybe you get some guitars donated or you work with your administrator and then you start like an after school guitar club or maybe you're bringing a ukulele into your elementary general classroom and you're going to do a songwriting unit because that's kind of in the spirit here. Like just figure out where where can you start? Where could you do one thing? Where can you use the pattern speed maker in uh, Soundtrap to do some simple drum sequencing thing? And again, there are resources to help you do that. Uh, using a MIDI controller or a keyboard to, to program some beats in. Let's start there uh, and then we can build from there. I think sometimes we get scared as music educators of like, I don't know, 
I, don't, I can't do all those things. Well, you don't need to do all those things. Just start easy. Little Kids Rock has a lot of resources. There are a lot of other, um, you know, web-based resources that are accessible to teachers, if not totally free. Um, and figure out where you want to start. And then another important thing, as I said before, and I'll probably say three more times, have a conversation with your students. Uh, sit down and ask them, like, what do you guys want to do? If we could do anything in music class, what would you be interested in? What do you want to play? And if I'm in band and my students, in high school band and my students are like, I want to play the Holst and I want to play the Granger. And then I'm like, awesome. <laughs> like, great. Let's let's do that. I mean, this is the true story. I got a, a keyboard lab from a nonprofit organization called Music of the Brain. And I get my keyboards and I get them set up. And like my first period... Um, I'm like, okay, and I'm talking to the students. And I was like, all right, if you could play any song, what would you want to play? And the first kid raised their hand, they're like, I don't know what it's called, but it goes, da 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 And I was like, oh, like of any song, I thought I was, I mean, this is like before Frozen. I don't even know what the popular music would have been. I thought they were going to pick like something from the radio or, or a hip hop beat. Nah, they wanted to play for Elise because they saw pianos and they're like, that's a piano song. So then I'm like, great. Let's play that. And I looped the intro. And then I was like, headphones on. I was like, just see if you can figure out those first couple notes. Because I wanted them to develop their ear. And we started there. And then when we added like a, um, it had like drum tracks built into the Casio school keyboard, whatever they were. They would put on a drum track and they would play along with that. And I found ways forward using me. And so sometimes when you have a conversation with your students, you'll be surprised at what they say. Like my, all of my students were students of color, but they liked more than just hip hop. You know, I had students who were into rock music or early EDM and electronica or a lot of Spanish language music. Um, and I wouldn't have known that had I just assumed that I knew what they liked. So have a conversation with your students, use that as a jumping off point and then take resources um, such as the ones that Little Kids Rock have uh, has and use that as a place where you can you know, get those resources that you have or, you know, the shed and you can start there and, and understand that there are a lot of resources right now for uh, music teachers who are trying to get into this for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, I have, I, <laughs> there's, there's two songs being a beginning guitar and a beginning piano teacher. There's two songs that always pop up. Fear Elise. Don't know why. It's really cool that they, they like that song. I think Fear Elise is the smoke on the water of piano. <laughs> right. Because it's it's that or or smoke on the water or Seven Nation Army. It's like if I hear bum as soon as one kid figures out on guitar how to go bum yeah. bum 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 it's like oh no. Seven, oh, no. seven, ten, seven, five, three, yeah, two. Don't, 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 oh, don't do it. Sorry, sorry. Don't do it. Stop. The, the, don't the funny them. thing is, is so like I'm I'm forty. Uh I taught but 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 that song came out in I'm guessing 2001 2002 it was popular then I yeah you can google it while I'm talking I taught the riff to Seven Nation Army to my kids in East Harlem in 2003 That's when it was 2003 Yeah there you go 2003 so I started teaching uh, 2003 2004 I was teaching in East Harlem and that was a riff that my students wanted to learn again I'm like how do you guys know about the white stripes but Seven Nation Army, that riff was still, was already then appearing in sports arenas, was appearing in commercials, whatever. So it's funny when I go into a classroom now, almost, you know, seven, 18 years later, 
and students are still learning that that riff it is like smoke on the water uh or iron man or whatever you know um it's a it's a timeless riff and so it's just i get a kick because that's like oh this new song and i'm gonna teach this riff to my students yeah it's super sticky um, so we're we're running low on time. Uh, I wanted to give you an opportunity if you had any, because you're talking to what I think you called them pre pre service uh, pre service yeah just pre service co- college music majors yeah college music educators. if you had one thing to say to current music educators like a thing to we, we've talked a lot about reframing the paradigm. Uh, those are all big words. We're talking about, uh, you know, just changing and, and everything. But do you have any other things to say that you want to get off your chest? Things that you've seen people do, things that you think are are, are fun and, and unique. Um, you've had so many great things to say. I have my tattoo. I'll always stare at it. I'll always love it. <laughs> storytellers. Hashtag storytellers. But, like, do you have any closing remarks to share with the music education world for the five people that will listen to this well i mean my mom my dad they'll, they'll listen to it my wife may she no she won't <laughs> listen to it so just my mom and my dad hi mom um yeah i think one of the things that i see over and over and i saw it you know and, and i see it in my own life is oftentimes we are we're waiting for permission we're waiting like well yeah it would be nice to change things but this is kind of the way it's always been done or I don't know if I I don't know if I can do that here or like I don't know if my administrator would let me have a period dedicated to a rock band as opposed to this music appreciation class that I'm currently running. Like sometimes we're just we know that things need to change, uh, but it it's work. And so if you're waiting for permission, take the random chance that you were listening to this individual podcast to the end of this one episode uh, to say like permission granted. And then the the other thing about the work is that if we are serious about this work, if we're serious about equity, diversity, inclusion, if we're serious about expanding the door to music education, if we're serious about um, providing opportunities for personally meaningful music making for our students, we have to allow that to complicate our professional lives. You know, it would have been easy for me to go into my school in East Harlem and just say, well, this is what school music looks like. If you want to participate in music, you're going to do this. It was more work for me to meet the students where they were. I had to go outside of my comfort zone. I had to learn new things. I had to take my binder full of lesson plan ideas and put it to the side and say, okay, let me let me pick up this technology. Let's have these conversations. Like if we're actually serious about equity, diversity, inclusion, uh, meaningful access, we have to allow that that challenge to complicate our lives. It's easy to say music for all. Well, and that that's a nice statement, but all? Well, who's included in all? Uh, everybody. All includes students who don't read traditional music staff notation, who don't want to play clarinet and trombone, who want to make hip hop beats instead of, you know, doing the holster, the Granger. All is actually a big, hairy, audacious challenge that we have to tackle. And so, um, you know, one of the challenges in music education is that, and I'm going to generalize here, which is allowed. I'll allow it. Uh, we became music education majors. You have permission. You have permission. Oh, thanks. Put, yeah, That's you have good. Permission, see? <laughs> um, 
we became music education majors because traditional approaches for music education worked for us. Probably, you know, I wanted my, my high school band director was my dad. Um, and so like, we want to be our high school choir director. We want to be our high school band director. And then we go and we become music education majors. And then we start teaching in the same way that we were taught. And then we have students for whom that works really well. And then they become music majors and we're really proud. And then they get jobs and then they teach the way that they were taught. And then students come through their programs. And it's like, it's this cycle. You know, we're fishing in the same pond and we're hoping we start catching new kinds of fish, but it, it doesn't work that way. We've got to disrupt that cycle. And, and one thing that's a challenge is just because it worked for us doesn't mean that that's what we should be doing in our own classroom. Uh, another, your other tattoo can say this, because it's a thing I, I, I like. It's like, are I have we a lot. I have a lot of tattoos here. Hold on. I got to keep notes. I have yeah, a yellow exactly. pen. I'm writing on my arm with yellow pen. Right Perfect. Now. And you, you've got, you've got space. Uh, you've, you've got a, the canvas for it. Um, it's like, are we preparing our students for their future or for our past? Mm. You know, it, it worked for me in the past, but that's not your music program. And this is hard. Your music program as a music teacher isn't about you. It's about the students. Where is the room for the student in your curriculum? Where is their voice? How are you preparing them for their future musically, not just replicating what worked for you in the past? And it took me a long time to realize that my music program wasn't about me uh, because I was like, well, but I'm the director and I need more low brass for my concert band. It was very me-centered. Um, and it took me a long time to realize like, oh man, like, this is about my students and what their goals are. What are the skills musically that are going to serve them throughout their life? And it's probably not playing trombone, I say as a trombone player. Um, we've got to kind of problematize the work that we do. We have to let it challenge our professional lives. And we just have to start somewhere. We have to embrace the opportunity. You don't have to be the expert. Just like take one step in that direction and then keep, you know, moving forward, always learning, always growing. We're, we're always in a sense of being and becoming as students, as teachers, I am the, I am the educator that I am right now. I'm in being, and I am becoming the educator that I will be in the years to come. And in that moment, I will also be simultaneously being and becoming. And so if we're always thinking of ourselves as evolving as educators, I think that's an exciting proposition as opposed to like, well, this is the curriculum I do and I've arrived and I'm going to do the same thing over and over again. Cause I feel like we've missed the opportunity if we do that. They're all amazing i've ran out of room on my arms i had to go on my legs i'm going down the calf but apologies um, to your wife uh all right well thank you so much brian for um sharing with us there's, there's so much good stuff here um how can we what's the best way to reach out to you what's the best way to uh, connect with app me i was i did it again APM no, all right so I'll ramble off a, a, a bunch of places now. Um, APME is popularmusiceducation.org. I'm Brian with a Y. So you can reach me at brian at popularmusiceducation.org. Uh, I'm also at Montclair State University. Uh, you can check out the, the work that I'm doing there. Um, uh, again, teach music technology and popular music classes there. I have a, a new book out called Popular Music Pedagogies, a practical guide for music educators. Uh, I still hang out with the, El the Little Kids Rock crew, Brian with a Y at littlekidsrock.org. Any of those places um, you, you can find me and, uh, you know, feel free to reach out. I'd be happy to, to connect and send you some resources. But um, yeah, thanks for having me on. It's, it's been a pleasure to, uh, to chat. 
All right, thank you.